When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I am Sam Abuel Samid. And that's for uh, one of our Twitter commenters who wanted me to say it nice and slow and, uh, and, and clearly. So that's, that's how I pronounce it most of the time. So you break it up to Abu L. Samid. Right. Just kind of phonetically. I figure that's that over the course of my 50 odd years, it, I've found that that's generally the way that most people most people have the easiest time pronouncing it is kind of phonetically the way it's spelled. All right. And uh, we'll leave it at that. OK, moving on. <laughs> uh, so well, this is episode 18. We're going to talk about hacking tractors and racing electric cars, trapping autonomous vehicles and uh, Porsche Volkswagen family business. Uh, but first, let's discuss what we've been driving. And Sam, I know you're out of town, but you've driven a Ford lately. I'm sorry. I, I, I have indeed. <laughs> I have a bright blue uh, Ford Focus RS. And this is a car I have been anxious to drive for a long time. Uh, in fact, you know, Amer- the American market in general has been anxious to drive the Focus RS for a long time. Uh, this is the first time that Ford has ever brought one of their European RS models to the U.S. market. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's really good. It's it's a lot of fun to drive. Oh, but it makes it sound like in a lot of ways, like it's good, but like, well, I mean, hmm. you know, no car is perfect. Right. Um, you know, and, you know, especially considering, you know, what you're getting, you know, for under $40,000, you know, it's, I wouldn't expect it to be perfect. Um, you know, uh, first of all, I will say, you know, the engine is absolutely lovely. Uh, it's a 350 horsepower version of the 2.3 liter EcoBoost um, that you can also find in a number of other Ford products, including the Lincoln MKC and, and the Mustang. Um, and this is the most powerful production version of that engine. Uh, yeah. You know, and it, it, they've done a fabulous job on it. I mean, it it goes great. Um, it's got tons of torque and it also sounds really good. It actually sounds a lot better than the engine that's in the Mustang. Um, that, you know, it's got a, a dual exhaust system and it. Um, it's got this really, you know, lovely growl to it, you know, and then of course, when you back off the throttle, you know, you get that nice popping from the, from the turbos on the overrun. Yeah. The, the turbo is the best. Yeah. So they actually like. I, I'm, I don't know if you've talked to Ford about this, but I was surprised to find out that because of the tight fuel management of today's um, engine 
management software and and systems, they actually have to dump a little extra fuel uh, for overrun to make that happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and it, you know, it's not surprising. You know, and given you know that this is a, a very low volume car. Yeah, I think they're only bringing about five thousand a year into the U.S. For, and only for a couple of years. You know, one one of the things with the uh, with the RSs is, is you know they they typically only do a a two year run towards the end of you know the life cycle you know the the model life cycle of the Focus or you know in the past it's been you know the original the first RS you know was back around 1970 or early 70s uh, based on the Escort and you know they've done various RS models over the years in Europe um, and it's typically a, a short run towards the end of the life cycle you know there's an all new Focus that you know we'll, we may well see before the end of this year there's already spy photos showing up online um, and you know it'll certainly be on sale by by the middle of 2018, at which point this generation of Focus RS will will go away with the rest of the current Focus lineup. Um, so, you know that they have, like I said, they've they've traditionally done you know short model runs. So fuel economy and you know aside from you know meeting the the you know the emission standards uh, to the degree that they need to, um, you know is not a priority for this one, which, you know, you can see in the fuel gauge. I mean, I just did a drive today from um, the Detroit area to Louisville, Kentucky, and, you know, in a straight highway run, you know, it only managed about 23 miles per gallon. You know, so this is not, uh, the not, not the most fuel efficient focus you're going to find. And you, you weren't pushing it that hard. I'm assuming on no. your drive, you just kind of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was most, you know, some occasional, you know, acceleration around trucks, you know, through uh, Kentucky, you know, up, up the hills, you know, just to get clear of uh, some of the long haul trucks, things like that. But, you know, I mean, this was mostly a, a highway cruise. Um, and, you know, I, I, like I said, I wasn't pushing it that hard. Um, but, you know, for for a car with this much power, you know, it, it does. OK, I'm, I'm, I, I wouldn't consider it unacceptable. I mean, if I was buying a 350 horsepower hot hatch like this, I wouldn't complain too much. The other thing, too, to, cons to keep in mind is that this one is still running on a set of winter tires. Uh, one of the options that you can get when you buy the one of the factory options you can get when you order a Focus RS is uh, an extra set of wheels uh, mounted with winter tires for I think it's uh, like two grand. Uh, so you get a second set, a full second set, and you can swap them in and out at the beginning and end of the winter season. That's uh, a really good deal. Right. Yeah, it actually is. I mean, you know, for a full set of, you know, aluminum wheels uh, with, with good tires on there, that that is quite a reason. I mean, you're, you're going to have a hard time beating a deal like that uh, in the aftermarket. So... Uh, you know, if you live in northern climes, uh, it's definitely a highly recommended option uh, for the car. But, you know, considering that there is no snow on the road right now, uh, you know, that means it's going to have more rolling resistance. And, you know, so that probably ate into the fuel economy by, you know, one or two miles per gallon. Uh, so if it was running on summer tires, it probably would have done a little bit better than it did. Um, but, you know, the, one of the one of the things that, you know, always appeals to me about any cars when it's got a, you know, Recaro seats in there. And I love yeah. the seats in this car. <laughs> you know, they are, they are fantastic. Um, you know, it's the, you know, I'm, 
you know me, I'm not the, the slimmest guy in the world, but these seats fit me perfectly. You know, it's it whenever I've driven anything with with these Recaros in there, um, it's always felt to me, you know, kind of it's all it's what I would imagine it would feel like, you know, if I had gone in for uh, a proper seat fitting for a race car. You know, it, it, they just happen to be perfectly sized for my frame. Um well, and, it's because anytime they're really Ricardo comfortable. needs to design a seat, they ask you to to be their their sort of body uh, example, right? Like they call you. Sure, off. yeah, they they yeah. call me all the time to te- test out their seats. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I, I actually find but, that like I really like the the sport seats in in cars like this, that, and the uh, the Golf R was kind of the, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Where it had the extra bolstered seats and the, just all of that stuff. I could do without the extra power, even just just for the chassis and the seats. Yeah, I mean you can you can you can get basically these same seats in the Focus ST as well, um, and you know they they're available in other you can get them in a Mustang and you know they're available in other brands of cars as well. So um, you know they're they're very comfortable. You know even on a five and a half hour drive today, uh, you know I did not feel at all pinched or you know there were no hard points or anything. I mean there, there were you know there's relatively few adjustments on these seats you know everything is pretty much fixed in place and you basically move the seat forward and back adjust the height and this the uh the rake of the the seat back and uh, there's also an inflatable lumbar support but aside from that you know everything else you know the side bolsters and everything are fixed in place but i did not nothing felt pinched at all after five hours in the seat so you know these the seats are definitely an a plus yeah, that's a pretty good endorsement. So, the, but the rest of the car too. Uh, so it's a, a little bit under forty thousand dollars. And you know, I mentioned the Golf R. That's sort of the other car mm-hmm. that it's it's like most. The Golf R and the Subaru uh, WRX STI are right. You know, they're the the main competitors in this segment. And you know, then in a, in the next few months, we'll have the uh, Civic Type R as well. So I'm not really sure that the STI. I mean, I guess it competes, but I, I just feel like the Golf R and the Focus uh, RS are, are kind of, they're almost an echelon above. You know, there's so much, there's such a solid platform, both of them, and they they have that level of refinement that I find lacking in the, the WRX and the STI, even though those cars definitely bring it in terms of performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's just me being a snob. Um, to a slight degree, I think, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, I mean, not, you know, yes, I, th- I think, you know, I think, uh, the Subarus are maybe not quite as refined, um, as, uh, as the VW and the, and the Ford and, you know, f- by the same token, you know, I don't think that the, that the Ford is as refined as the VW, you know, especially in the, the interior, you know, fit and finish the materials, you know, I think, you know, Volkswagen, that's one thing that Volkswagen has done really well for a long time is the, the interiors of their car, you know, even in their mainstream models, you know, the, the Volks, you know, the mainstream Volkswagen models, aside from, you know, when they did the current generation Jetta sedan, when they first launched it here in the U S they decontented it and went to hard plastics and everything. And, you know, that, that was, you know, generally it was an exception to the rule for Volkswagen. Um, you know, and to some degree they did that on the on the US market facade as well. But in for the most part, you know, most VWs, you know, have really nice interiors, you know, especially for their price point. And, you know, I think the the Golf R, you know, is probably a you know a notch above the the focus in that respect. Um but, you know, overall, you know, it's it's very functional. You know, the, the controls are, are pretty well laid out. Um, 
you know, the, the rear seat, you know, is, uh, I would say not as roomy as a civic, but, um, you know, it's still, it's still adequate for a couple of adults. Uh, so, you know, I think, overall you know the focus r is is a really nice car a lot of fun to drive i haven't had a chance to try out the drift mode yet i haven't found a a suitable place to try that out but um well i mean you you could find a truck stop and just kind of hide between a couple of trailers right and just do your thing yeah yeah exactly i'll you know do my uh uh, what what's his name? Why can't I think of his name now? You, the Kim Connor guy. Block or Jim Connor. Yeah, Ken Ken Glock, Ken Block. Uh, you know, do my Ken Block imitation. Um, yeah. In a, in a Kentucky truck stop, I'm sure that'll go over <laughs> real well. You know, it's probably not the wildest thing going on in a Kentucky truck stop. Uh, when you're stop probably right there. Yeah, but so it does have all wheel drive, and you know the chassis is buttoned down. How does it? Yeah, well, that's the that, that's the other thing. Um, this car um, has the, the same uh, flaw that I found when I drove the uh, Focus ST last year um, in terms of its chassis control. Overall, it's really good, um, you know, even over like some really rough pavement, you know, around my area where I live, um, you know, given what it's capable of, the you know, it doesn't it doesn't punish you. It doesn't feel punishing. But the one thing that I've found both with the ST and with the RS is that there's certain six sections of road of, of freeway, you know, at highway speeds, you know, 70, 75, 80 miles an hour where the road looks smooth, but there's just enough of a little bit of an undulation in the road. And, you know, there's one particular section of I-94, um, between Ann Arbor and Detroit Metro airport where certain cars exhibit this behavior where it just, it seems a little bit bouncy. Uh, you know, so the, the natural frequency of the suspension is getting excited a little bit by the, by these low amplitude, low frequency waves in the pavement. Um, and I, I found the, the same kind of behavior in a couple other sections along my drive today. Um, you know, not, not all the way, but just in a, a few sections of road. Um, and when I drove the, uh, the Civic or the Focus ST, uh, last fall, um, I, I actually gathered some data and I shared it with the uh, engineers at Ford. Um, you know, and they were, you know, they were going to take a look at it. I don't think they've. You know, I don't think they've done anything with it yet, but it, I pointed I pointed it out to them, you know, and just to, just to make them aware of it, you know, is something to consider when they work on the next focus. Well, so what kind of data did you gather? Oh, uh, I just I used the uh, just from my phone. Um, you know, I, I I mounted the phone, mounted my phone in a, in a mount on the windshield, and um, uh, used used uh, an app called Torque Pro, um, yeah. and the um, uh, there's a, a plugin for it called track recorder. Uh, so I basically used the, the phone as a dash cam, but it also recorded some data from the accelerometers in the phone. So you could see, you know, the, um, the, the vertical acceleration of the car, you know, that you, so you could see the, the actual, you know, the slight bounciness, uh, that you right, can feel is, in your backside. Yeah. And you can see that. So what it graphs that out basically is like a, yeah. um, so you'll see the frequency of oscillation that's yeah. going to make it back. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like about a, a, I think it was about a one to one and a half hertz oscillation. You know, so it's a fairly slow oscillation, um, but, you know, it's enough that it's noticeable. 
And yeah. you know, mo- most of the other vehicles where I've experienced that are usually higher riding uh, trucks, you know, certain trucks like the Toyota Tacoma, uh, the t- uh, Toyota Tundra um, really exhibited the same, that kind of behavior to a much, much larger degree. Um, and also uh, the Jeep Wrangler was particularly bad along that section of road. Huh. That's not, that's not too great when your performance cars uh, <laughs> ride Riding like a Wrangler, but um, well, sure. I guess it's not you know, it, it's 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 not a huge um, you know vertical motion of the car, but it's just enough that it's noticeable. Yeah, um, you know, so it's um, it's a, you know it's a, just just enough that it's annoying. Yeah, well, maybe next time you'll you'll get they'll put a little badge on their uh, you know uh, handling by Sam. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, right. The um. <laughs> The Isuzu's that used to have the handling by Lotus. Yeah. Fender. Um, what about you? What so, have you been driving? Yeah. Uh, FCA has been taking good care of me over the last two weeks with um, their sort of off-road ready capable uh, vehicles. Last week I had a Ram 2500 power wagon and this week I have a Cherokee Trailhawk. Uh, so the, the Ram 2500 power wagon I feel is rather excessive <laughs> for the street uh but i can definitely see like this thing has it's it's set up seriously for going off road and and doing your thing with it uh, it comes with a, a winch in the front bumper which i thought was kind of neat uh definitely the suspension is beefed up it's it's visibly you know there's there's, there's very strong pieces under there and i only did a very little bit of off-roading with it uh which terrified my nine-year-old we drove around the backyard <laughs> Because <laughs> um, we had a, about a foot and a half of snow, yeah. Uh, so I I put it in four high, and then you know drove into the backyard where he's like, Dad, 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 you're gonna hit the swing set. I was like, Nah, fine, relax. <laughs> uh, I didn't hit the swing set. Must have a pretty big slide. backyard to fit that thing in there. No, no, it's actually a small backyard, <laughs> which was the entertainment factor. Uh, I have a quarter acre, so um, yeah, it's not a huge backyard. Uh, but then I, you know, put it in four low and it's, it, you know, it's really I, without actually going somewhere and, and really flogging it off road. It's the best I can say about that kind of stuff is, yeah, it's really capable, obviously. Uh, have you ever driven a Raptor? Yes. And that's, I was actually getting to that. Like, oh, okay. I, I prefer the power wagon to the Raptor, uh, possibly would change my mind if I was, you know, trying to fly them over the terrain uh in baja but just generally the raptor is like squishier and softer and a, a little bit more injected with steroids visually i kind of don't like that uh the the power wagon is definitely very you know it, it's 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 very i guess i picked up this term today uh, it's very graphic you know in terms of its look uh, it's definitely been uh, gone over with the the butch stick <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, but it's not quite as extreme. Um, and I like the way it looks. It looks, it has some of that look like the traditional power wagons did, you know, they're, it's tall. It's got somewhat narrow tires with the Raptor has wider tires. Uh, so I, I like the power wagon better on the road as a driver as well. It It's, it's not quite as squishy squeezy as much of a handful, I guess. Um, is that where you were going with the, the Raptor versus power wagon? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've actually never had a chance to drive a Raptor, either the first generation or the, the new one yet. So I was just curious if you, if you had driven them and how they compared. 
Yeah, the the Raptor I think is a more extreme uh vehicle. Uh the the power wagon is first of all this was a, a is this is a long wheelbase truck. Uh and and I know now you can get the Raptor in the same sort of configuration. Um the 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 power wagon doesn't go quite as far, I don't think. It's it's definitely, you know, ready for punishment. Uh but it's it's not it's a little bit more of a traditional pickup in that sense where the the Raptor is a little bit more of a uh, you, you know, it, the, yeah, I mean, the, the Raptor looks more like an off-road race truck. Yeah, and that's and I think that's the vibe they're trying to give you with the Raptor a little bit more. Um, you know, the the Ram is starting to show its age. Just the, the overall, you know, the interior is it was nice. This one was was equipped with the the leather interior and the ventilated seats, and uh, so it's about a sixty about a sixty three thousand dollar truck all told. So it had, had some options, um, had the leather and luxury group and stuff. So it was, it was nicely equipped inside, but you know, some of the plastics and areas are, are hard. There's a bunch of seams. Some of the stuff doesn't match, you know, the next, this truck is going to be redone soon is my gut feel. Uh, and just, you know, I'm sure product cycle would bear that. I just haven't looked at it. Um, yeah, I think we'll see uh, new Rams next year as 2019 models. Right. And at that point, the interior is going to be given a once over. So it's not bad. It's just and it was I've always liked the Ram. This generation is just, you know, as everybody continues to improve, you look at it and you go, OK, it's starting to starting to feel like it's a few years old because it's a few years old, uh, which is not saying anything wrong about it. It's just, you know, it is it is what it is. And I'm, I'm expecting that the materials and stuff will be upgraded for look and feel, if not actual, you know, <laughs> longevity quality or cost uh when they redo it so it's it's a nice it's a nice vehicle if especially if you do you know some some serious off-roading with it it's a good choice i think it's it's a little bit more sensible in some ways than the raptor which is you know edges a little bit toward the the caricature uh they're different flavors of the same kind of thing though uh the one thing i didn't like as much about the power wagon is like i really had to use the grab handle a lot because i'm short <laughs> and this is a tall truck I really actually had to like pull myself up uh, and my nine-year-old getting it was hilarious because he, he basically <laughs> was like, he had to just kind of climb in onto the you floor. You got a step ladder was, for him? Yeah. Uh, so it, it it was good. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the Ram itself is a good truck. The the 6.4 liter Hemi is a wonderful engine. Um, the one that certainly the Raptor gets better fuel economy, maybe not by much, but this got like 12 and a half miles per gallon. Ooh, that's yeah. painful. Uh, Although, you know, when gas is only a couple bucks a gallon, it's not doesn't hurt that much. But yeah, well, and it would it would go into uh, four cylinder mode uh, pretty readily and I could sort of totter along with it. So, you know, it's both this and the Raptor. They're both comfortable inside, too. They're they're definitely you know some, some tough hardware here, but lined nicely with with uh, materials if you get the luxury packages and this one had it. So uh, and then the you know, again, the. The Cherokee Trailhawk is the same kind of thing. I feel like a every Cherokee should be a Trailhawk because it's the best looking Cherokee. Mm-hmm. Um, with the, the trimmed the trimmed fascias for approach and departure. Uh, I haven't had it all that long, so I'll probably we'll probably catch up on it uh, again next week. But this one has the V six. Uh, man, that is a thirsty little engine <laughs> <laughs> in the Cherokee. I that that's about my biggest criticism right now is like it sucks down a tank of fuel. Um, and it's only getting about 20 miles to the gallon and I 
feel like it should do better for what it is. But well, that that reminds me of uh, you know one other slight annoyance about the uh, the focus. Um, you know, like most cars in its segment, you know, it has a relatively small fuel tank. Uh, it's only like a 13 gallon tank. Oh, and, man. you know, with that, you know, 22, 23 miles per gallon, uh, it doesn't have the kind of range that you would get out of a lot of other cars in this size class. Yeah. You're stopping like every 250, 300 miles. Yeah. To fill it. Yeah. That's tedious. <laughs> but, you know, it's not like you got to sit around for a few hours waiting for it to charge up. So. Hmm. Yeah, there is that. So speaking of that, why don't we hit some of our topics? Uh, you know what? Since you said charge up, why don't we talk about electric racing cars? It seems like that's actually becoming with the the growth of Formula E. There's new manufacturers. Do uh, you think that that's going to start to be kind of a leading area for uh, for motorsports? It certainly seems that way. Uh, certainly the, the FIA, you know, the International Automotive Federation, who are behind Formula One and a lot of the other top ranked racing series in the world um, are putting a big push behind Formula E. Um, <clears throat> you know, they're going to they're going into their uh, fourth season this uh, later this summer or fall. Um, and then next year in uh, 2018, because they, they run their seasons, you know, staggered with Formula One. So they start, I think, like in late summer and run into the spring. Um, and uh, next year for season five, uh, there's going to be some big changes uh, up to this point. Uh, Formula E has been basically a spec racer series. You know, they've had one chassis uh, that was designed and built by Delara. Um, McLaren has built the electronics and the uh, motors. Uh, Williams did the battery system and Renault did all the system integration. And it was all put together by a company called Spark Racing Technologies. Um, Spark is continuing as the uh, the vehicle constructor. So they're pulling all the pieces together. Um, and this time McLaren has taken over design of the battery pack and uh, went for the uh, for the new cars coming next year. Um, there's a bunch of manufacturers that are going to be providing the powertrains for these things, the, the power electronics and the motors that are going to go in into the uh, the all new car that's being designed for next year. That looks quite a bit more radical than the first generation Formula E car. Um, and, uh, last week or earlier this week, um, FIA announced nine, uh, manufacturers that have been, um, uh, homologated to provide powertrains for the cars starting in 2018. Uh, and then they're, they're also leaving the door open for additional manufacturers to come in in subsequent years. Uh, but for, you know, starting in 2018, you're going to have, uh, Apt Formula E, a uh, German uh, company that has had a long relationship with Audi, uh, BMW, DS Automobiles, uh, which is the the now separate premium brand within uh, the Peugeot Citroen Group, Jaguar Land Rover, Mahindra from India, Next EV, Neo, Penske Autosport, Renault, and Venturi Automobiles. Uh, so they'll uh, they'll all be providing their own. Uh, motors and power electronics for the new cars and the new battery system and the, the new car design uh, will address one of the issues they've had with these first generation cars, which was a relatively short range. Um, 
because they, you know, you can obviously can't charge these things very quickly. Um, one of the things that they've, one of the unique features of formula E races up until now is that, uh, halfway through the race, uh, the drivers pull into the pits, but instead of getting the car service, they hop out of the car and then hop into a second car. So each driver got two cars and they would run half the race with one car and then half the race with a second car with a fully charged battery. Um, and, uh, and then they'd go from there the, the new cars are supposed to be able to run the full race distance of a 60 minute race, um, with, uh, on a single charge. So they'll only, the drivers will only use one car for the whole race. Nice. Uh, so what do you think is the, all of a sudden, it seems like there's just a lot of interest, vigorous interest, uh, from major manufacturers with formula E are they looking to really crack the code for streetcar technology? You know, the way racing improves the breed, it's the sort of trope that gets trotted out all the time. That's, that's certainly part of it. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's several factors. Um, you know, one, you know, manufacturers like to be involved in big time motorsports, you know, as a, as a promotional thing. And, you know, the the two biggest forms of racing in the world right now are formula one and Le Mans, you know, or sports car racing. Um, and at the top levels, you know, especially, uh, Le Mans, you know, the P one class, um, and then in formula one, you know, there it's horrendously expensive to compete. I mean, you know, you're talking three, $400 million a year to compete at the top levels of those, of those series. And, you know, that's extraordinarily expensive. Um, you know, so you've got the combination now of trying to find a more affordable series to compete in where you've actually got competition. And that's, you know, what up until now you haven't really had competition among manufacturers. Manufacturers like to have other manufacturers to compete against, you know, so they, they're not just running on their own. You know, they, they, they want to be able to say, Hey, our system is better than, than theirs. Um, so, you know, they're going to have some real competition next year. And then, um, you know, they're, they're also trying to, you know, they, they like, they like to be able to at least have some claim to relevance, uh, when they go racing, uh, you know, so, you know, certainly in, in the last few years, you've had hybrid systems, both in formula one and in the LMP one class, uh, for the manufacturers at Le Mans, um, and, you know, I mean, some of that technology has uh, has helped production cars. But now, you know, especially like, for example, uh, you know, the Volkswagen, you know, with Audi, um, you know, they pulled out of uh, LMP1 at the end of 2016 uh, as part of the cost saving measures at the Volkswagen Group in the wake of the diesel scandal. And, you know, they're going to be working with APT um, and Formula E, um, you know, the, where, you know, basically they want to prove that, you know, they can do something clean and fast. I don't think that's an, I mean, clean and fast is definitely an issue for, I mean, not an issue for, for EVs, right? That's what they do. Uh, yeah, absolutely. These, uh, this is, I don't necessarily follow the formula series as, as much as some other folks. I'm not a big follower of, of racing uh, in general, but this really seems like it's it's shaking up to be one of the most interesting and exciting sort of areas of uh, motorsport. 
over the next few years. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, now that it's progressing beyond that, this first stage of being a spec series where every everybody's running identical cars with identical powertrains and, you know, electronics and batteries, um, you know, where there's going to be some a bit more differentiation between the cars, at least mechanically anyway, um, you know, that that will add some some interest to it. I think the I think the probably the biggest complaint I have in general about Formula E um, is that the whole series is run on street courses, which I hate street racing. Um, you know, it, what, what do you mean by a street course? Like I mean, block you know, streets and uh, set it up like- you know, courses that are set up, you know, on city, you know, urban centers, you know, so places like Monaco and, um, and uh, the, the various other tracks that they race at, which are not, you know, proper racetracks, but, you know, running down city streets. And so it's like the it's like the outrun video game from the 80s. That I yeah. Um, you know, and, <laughs> you know, if you've ever been to one of these races, uh, you know, as a spectator, it's problematic because you generally can only see one little section of the track right in front of you um, because generally the whole, typically the, the course is, is narrow, you know, I mean, it's dictated by the physical limitations of urban streets um, and are completely lined down both sides with concrete barriers and fences, you know, which severely limit visibility, make it hard for the drivers to pass, you know, it limits the passing zones Um you know, you don't have any runoff areas. You know, there's there's very little you know room for the drivers to maneuver. Um, so generally, I'm not a fan of of racing on street circuits. I much prefer to see cars running on you know open natural terrain circuits. Yeah, well, and there's probably not as many elevation changes and stuff too. If you're in an urban center versus a you know yeah, center. there's usually almost none. Yeah, is that so? Is that part of it though? Is that um, this because they're they're working with a limited amount of energy storage too. Like if you had elevation changes, you may not be able to get the um, longevity out of the batteries. Not not necessarily because um, you know I mean you're gonna you know if you've got elevation changes, you know they generally tend to go both ways. So you're both, gonna yeah, you're gonna you're gonna pick up some regenerative braking. You know going downhill. You know just as you're gonna lose energy going uphill. Yeah, you know, I mean that that's that's some certainly th- something that can be worked around. Um, I just think you know from from the spectator standpoint, and even from the you know from the driver's standpoint, I think I think most race drivers would prefer you know if you if you ask them you know and they answered honestly, they would prefer to drive on a natural terrain course. Um, you know, someplace like like Road America or Road Atlanta, you know, or the you know the Nurburgring or Spa, rather than on a, a an urb, you know a course made up of urban city streets. Um, you know, because and you know the urban streets, you know, also tend to be a lot bumpier, and you have manhole covers that pop up, you know, in the middle of the, the middle of the race and things like that. Um, so you know, it's just you know I think it's just it's just not a great environment for racing, but. You know, because these are electric race cars, I think part of the point was to show that you can have racing in this kind of environment without, you know, obviously without the pollution and certainly without the noise level that you get from traditional race cars. Oh, I see. So it's it's somewhat of a PR move. It is. Yeah. Uh, how Do you have any idea how they're going to handicap? Like maybe they haven't worked this out either. Uh, but since they've opened it up to different. Uh, manufacturers and uh, essentially different chassis types. How are they going to handicap them so that you know they're sort of evened off um, competition? 
That's that I don't know. I haven't had a chance to look through the full rule book, so I'm not sure you know what they're doing. The the chassis are still going to be common among everybody, so everybody will be running the same uh, chassis. You know, it's a, it's a new chassis, but you know it'll be the same for everyone and the same battery system. Um, they just get to do their own motors and power electronics. So I don't know what, if anything, they're going to do to balance them out. You know, they they may do something like they do for. Uh, in sports car racing where they have the the so-called balance performance system where they'll make adjustments to, you know, to weight, uh, minimum weights of the cars. You know, if somebody's running too fast, you know, they'll give them, you know, give them an extra 10 or 20 kilos to run with, things like that, uh, to balance it out. So I don't know if they're going to do any of that. They don't do that in Formula One. Um, so yeah. it'll be, cur- I'll be curious to see what they do in Formula E. I mean, it's sort of. The, the mercenary in me says they should do nothing. They should allow cheating and it should just be that kind of excitement. Um, I, I agree. Yeah. All right. I mean, you know, from, yeah. from the perspective of a spectator watching the race, you know, I want to see, you know, real competition. I, you know, I don't want to see them all balanced out. I, you know, I want to see them, yeah. you know, trying to come up with innovations that, you know, actually can help make the cars faster, make right. them I mean, more we, efficient that, that or perform was, better. Yeah. That was when we had that kind of real, skunk works kind of innovation we got stuff like the chaparrals and and all those it's really really and brabham bt54s and yeah actually a whole uh, series of brabham's designed by uh, gordon murray yeah just, just like all kinds of crazy stuff and those are the cars that we we really look back at now and and they get us excited i you know we're not as excited about some of the stuff that came after and, and of course, there were, you know, there were cars like the Porsche 917, which was the brainchild of a of a, of a hair professor, Dr. Ferdinand yes. Piech. Yes. Everybody's favorite crazy German. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you could uh, you could say that. Uh, if we're going to talk about him, we should talk about what he's doing with uh, with Volkswagen, um, which I, so I wasn't clear. He's looking to, first of all, apparently he's lost like all his friends. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not so sure that he ever really had all that many friends. Um, yeah, you know, he doesn't seem like that warm and fuzzy kind of guy. No, warm and fuzzy are definitely not words that uh, I, I think that anybody who's ever dealt with, uh, with Dr. Piek would, uh, would use to describe him. Uh, for those who are, are not aware in the audience, uh, Ferdinand Piek is the, uh, let's see, grandson of Ferdinand Porsche and right. nephew of uh Ferry Porsche. Uh so Ferdinand Porsche was uh, uh, he you know he was the the guy behind the the Volkswagen the original Volkswagen Beetle and and numerous other things uh in the pre-war years. His son Ferry Porsche um started uh Porsche AG, you know, the sports car manufacturer. And he designed the 356 and and worked on the 911 and, and other cars. Um, and then um, Ferry Porsche's uh, uh, Ferry, Por- uh, Ferry Ferry had a, a sister, uh, Louise. Uh, and so Ferdinand uh, Porsche had, you know, the, from him, there were two branches of the family, the Porsche branch um, with um, Ferry and Wolfgang or no, let's see, Wolfgang. Uh, anyway, anyway, there, there were two branches, uh, you know, yeah, it, was Fer- it was Ferry and Louise and uh, Louise's married name was Piak. And so their kids were the, the third generation of the family. 
to get in the car business. And Ferdinand Piak is Louise's son. And he came up through the ranks uh, through Porsche, you know, in the 1960s and early 70s. Um, he developed a lot of the great, the classic Porsche uh, racing cars like the 908 and the 917. Uh, before He's definitely, moved- definitely a brilliant engineer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No one, no one would argue that. Uh, you know, and then he went over and, and, you know, ran engineering at Audi for many years and developed the Quattro system um, and then eventually moved over to Volkswagen and moved up and eventually became the CEO and, and later the chairman of uh, Volkswagen AG. And so the, the ownership structure of Porsche is kind of interesting. You know, uh, there's uh, Porsche SE which is the holding company and all of the shares of Porsche SE are split. Uh, 50% of the shares are uh, 50% of the shares went to Ferry Porsche, 50% to Louise Piac, And then it you know was inherited by their kids. So within the Porsche and Piac branches of the family, they own hundred percent of Porsche SE. And the way, you know, it's kind of like, you know, with the Ford family's control of Ford class B stock, you know, they, they're the only ones allowed to own that stock in Porsche SE. Right. And then, you know, back about a decade ago, you know, there was this bizarre maneuvering where Porsche SE tried to take over Volkswagen and um, they ran out of money. And uh, anyway, Volkswagen um, turned around and swallowed. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so, um, Piet, Ferdinand Piet, basically <laughs> now in the in the wake of the diesel scandal, um, you know, they're everybody's trying to push him out. You know, he was uh, chairman of the supervisory board of VW for for many years after he retired as CEO. And basically the, the rest of the family is now in the process of trying to buy out his stake in Porsche SE uh, for a couple well, of billion dollars. That, yeah, that's the question that I had. Like, so I guess his stake is about fifteen percent, a little under fifteen percent of Porsche SE, uh, and it's worth about a billion euros, one point one billion or so dollars. Um, the 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 family may not buy him out. They, depending on on what happens, he may actually be bought out by uh, the the larger Chinese joint venture partners. So uh, FAW and SAIC uh, might actually pony up the money, which would shift the ownership structure a bit. Uh, and it, it, would, it would give them a, a much larger say in what goes on at Volkswagen and Porsche and all their other brands. Um, so that, that may actually really change a couple of other things moving forward too, because of the, 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 the labor union that's involved there. And the, there's an ownership stake uh, for the, the state of lower Saxony. Um, so there's, there's a few pieces here that it's, you know, that, that move around on the chessboard, depending on what happens. Uh, yeah. There's, there's a lot of interesting pieces. Um, it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out. You know, it's definitely, you know, a real life family soap opera. Yeah. I mean, the, the it, but it doesn't sound like uh, Piek is really interested in um, re- really fighting for what's his, I guess. I, I don't know. He's, he's from the articles I read. It makes him sound like a broken man. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he's, he's 80 years old now. Um, and 
you know, I think it may be that he's just getting tired of of fighting with his whole family and with the rest of VW's management, and maybe and you know the um, prosecutors in Germany have been looking into uh, into his actions, and you know part part of you know I think a lot of people generally consider um, you know he, that he's it's not so much that he is directly responsible for the whole diesel scandal, but rather that the, the corporate culture that he built up within Volkswagen over his, the course of his tenure, you know, of a very hierarchical structure, you know, and very top down management. Uh, you know, he, he's always been, you know, very controlling from, you know, reports from people who've worked from, for him. Um, you know, and there, there's the whole, the very regimented kind of culture, you know, where when top management says you will produce a diesel that is that meets U.S. emission standards and gets, you know, whatever right. you know mile per gallon target um, and, and at this price point. Much. Right. Yeah. Um, and if you don't do it, we will find somebody who does. And, you know, that's the sort of structure, you know, that, that or that culture, you know, that kind of led to what happened, what ultimately happened. So whether or not, you know, he, you know, he or his, uh, you know, his upper management knew specifically what was done. They certainly knew why it was done. They certainly understood why it was done. Yeah. Now that the reign of terror is over and they're still cleaning up, like the, the, the ripple effects of just that one issue are going to take a, a, quite a long time um, yeah. to play out. And and so it, it the uh, the state of Lower Saxony has like they have like a twenty percent um, stake in mm-hmm. Volkswagen, and they're tied up with the the union, which has pretty um, pretty strong. Or maybe the union is separate too, but like there's you know European labor unions are no joke. <laughs> yeah, well, you know the the way it's the way it's structured at Volkswagen and you know a lot of other German companies, big German companies. I don't know that the union actually has any equity stake, but um, you know under German law, they do get um, half of the seats on the uh, what is known as the management board, which is roughly the equivalent of a board of directors, uh, you know, at an American company. So you know it would be. You know, IG Metal and the other unions, IG Metal is the big one uh, that represents most of the workers, but there's a few others. They have half of the they have 10, I think it's 20 seats on the, the management board and half of those uh, are allocated to the union. So it'd be equivalent to half of the board of directors at G- General Motors or Ford being from the UAW, uh, which, you know, would would be, you know, it, it would make some people's heads explode in this country. <laughs> that's what they want including perhaps some of our listeners <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> uh well this this is gonna play out uh pretty quickly though right i mean he's there's gonna be moves on this uh in the not too distant future to actually like get this this done it seems yeah like- i think uh they um Porsche SE put out a statement uh, earlier this week. Uh, I think they want to have this done uh, by the end of April, um, basically, to, you know, to have this all settled one way or another. I think the Chinese are just going to pony up money. 
that's, that's going to change. Things. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, I don't know how that's going to, you know, because what we're talking about here is uh PX stake in Porsche SE. Um, and I, I'm not sure if anyone outside of the family is actually allowed to own any of that. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the, the details of the legal details of how that stock is structured. Hmm. You know, cause for example, you know, I mean, you know, probably the closest equivalent here would be Ford class B stock. Um, you know, when, when Henry Ford died, um, you know, or when, after Henry, when, when Ford went public in uh, the mid 1950s and Henry Ford, the uh, second set up the, the stock structure for Ford motor company, uh, they created two classes, you know, they created the, the class A stock, which is the regular common stock that you can buy on the, the open market. And then class B stock is only owned by um, the family, by the Ford, by members of the Ford family. And um, class B stock represents it's only like about two and a half percent of the total shares, uh, outstanding shares of Ford. But they get 40 percent of the votes. Um, and. Uh, whenever, if any member of the family um, sells any of their class B stock to someone outside of the family, that automatically gets converted to class A stock. So it loses those, those extra votes uh, that they had. And I, I think that there's something similar with the, the Porsche SE um, shares. So I'm not sure if, if they can, if they even can sell it to anyone outside of the family. Huh. Uh, that's interesting. Um, Reuters had a quote by, uh, I guess it was it's, uh, Ferdinand Dudenhofer. Uh, I guess he, he he's from the University of, I'm going to mangle this, uh, Duisburg, Essen, um, saying that he doesn't expect that the Porsche Piac families will, will put up the money. So maybe it's it's that uh, the the family members will get funding from the other partners. I don't know. This is going to be a thorny deal if yeah. there's that kind of stock restriction or something. But um, fa- fascinating to watch on the business side. Not not a whole lot to actually do with cars, other than they are companies that make cars. Right. Well, you know, like like I said, you know, Ferdinand Piac himself, you know, have you know has been a huge influence on the way Volkswagen and and Audi have been run over the last forty years. Um, you know, I mean his his whole approach to management. Um, has hugely influenced the both the the culture of the company and and a lot of the product decisions that the company has made through its various brands and the expansion of Volkswagen, you know, to now you know I think twelve between uh, cars and trucks, you know, twelve different brands that they either own or control. Um, yeah. So you know it, he has been hugely influential on the auto industry as a whole. Yeah, well, they went from under him. He, they they went from this, you know, a big player in Europe and uh, a big player anywhere there was a protected market. That's why they were in South America so much was the, mm-hmm. those were protected markets, and they just they they had that game down. Um, and they've they've expanded out to to really be a, a very large global player. Uh, so I wonder if that sustains with some other leadership, or if he really was the vision and the visionary. Uh, that, that set it up and sort of kept it going, even with his reign of terror. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Uh, yeah. So let's move on to another com- kind of car topic. I don't know. Um, you had actually sent me 
this this link earlier in the week um and it's gotten play i've seen it around the web uh over the last couple of days it's from uh, i think motherboard yeah uh, from vice um so it's it's about farmers are hacking their uh john deere tractors so that they can actually you know repair them and do their farming um because very much like cars tractors now are highly sophisticated and they require a software handshake uh, for a lot of things a lot of times you can replace a physical part but it's going to be married to the rest of the vehicle and and uh, you know blessed with with either a software download or a key gen or or something and that's uh that's a big problem for farmers when stuff breaks and it can only be worked on by uh authorized John Deere service center and they're like 40 miles away or even more sometimes from some of these farms and they charge an hourly rate that's not cheap and uh and they charge a premium for parts and everything else yeah uh so it locks in uh the farmers to sort of this monopoly on parts and repair which isn't really uh, it doesn't sound fair and it doesn't it doesn't really mean you own the vehicle right like if you buy the tractor you own it you own the, the ability to repair it to service it as you see fit and that's not really what's going on here this is more like well that's that's the way it should be Right. That's that. That's the and that's everybody's perception. Uh, But really what happens is uh, John Deere has had farmers signing essentially license agreements like end user license agreements uh, that says they they will not use unauthorized parts and service. And they they will abide by the the restrictions that that John Deere has laid out in this this uh, document. it runs kind of alongside the the right to repair argument. Uh, it, it's it's a it's kind of a shadow issue. But what's happening is the farmers are actually turning to private forums hosted out of Eastern Europe, where the software has been cracked, uh, so that you know the guy who has the farm equipment dealership in town can can get you up and running and 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 you know service your vehicle when you need it. Uh, as part of your community versus the the deer guy from wherever who's going to charge X amount and and you're going to lose a day of farming. Like when you're farming, you don't necessarily have that that buffer of time. Like sometimes you just have to do the thing you have to do right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean when you know when when you've got a harvest, you know when the when the wheat or the corn is ripe and it's ready to be harvested, you know you got to get out there and do it now. You know or you risk that you know. Uh, it will get overripe or it'll rain and you know it'll get ruined. Uh, so yeah, you you don't have that flexibility as a farmer. And you know the the reason why I included this is because I think you know it it uh, it's very important in the context of a lot of what we've been talking about with autonomous cars going forward. You know, I mean, you you mentioned the right the whole concept of right to repair. And, you know, this is a battle that's been going on for a number of years now, you know, um, usually at a, at a much lower level, you know, just in terms of getting, you know, diagnostic tools to plug into cars um, right. or or even other devices, you know, have, having the, the right, you know, once you buy buy a physical object, you know, the traditionally the idea is once you buy a physical object, you own that and you can do whatever you want with it. Well, um, and that's what like so I ran into some of that not to, to completely derail us but like I ran into this issue with my Volvos my 2001s right. um, Volvo made it they made the tools available you know but it, they didn't make it easy to figure out exactly what you needed 
uh, and then they were very expensive. And then I still had to buy access to the the mothership computer. Uh, you know, so I needed the computer that would plug into the interface that would plug into the car that ran this, you know, and that computer ran the software um, that then would also talk to mother Volvo back in Sweden. All of those things had a cost associated with them and a spec and a difficulty. They're not set up for amateurs. They're not supposed to be set up for amateurs. Uh, so if you're an independent shop, they made it available for you to, to, to get these things. And some, some shops did at a pretty high cost. Uh, what wound up happening was because the cars were out in the market long enough, I bought a $200 cloned interface from China, <laughs> which, <laughs> which everybody did. And that came with a obsolete version of the uh, Volvo software called Vita, which is like vehicle information diagnostic after sales or, or whatever. But that was the software that basically let me access the different modules in the car and shut stuff off, turn things on, resets, uh, that kind of stuff. If I had wanted to, with that system, I think even the crack system, I could still have bought a uh, subscription to the online like iVita system and downloaded software from Volvo. But it's, it's yeah, it's not easy. And it takes this level of dedication. Uh, and that I mean, you basically did the same thing that these, tra- these farmers are doing. I absolutely did. Uh, and it was very frustrating. So you should be thrown in jail like, for this, right? Well, I mean, the cars are gone. <laughs> they should be thrown in jail for designing some of the flaws they did into those cars. Um, but but the, the thing that really bugged me was like, um, I, I, I kind of come down on both sides of it. Like, I understand if you are a manufacturer and you're warrantying this, this product, uh, you know, to have somebody tinkering around with it is, uh, you know, exposing you to to risk if they get hurt or injured because of something they did that, that it can't be traced. And so you're holding the bag and it, it certainly costs you money if they break something and make a warranty claim on it. And you're like, you replace an engine transmission or something like that. Uh, so I understand that part of it, but I kind of come down on the whole, like, no, I, I bought it. It's mine. It's mine to mess up. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> and I agree. You know, and I, I think, you know, I think that, you know, if you, buy something, you know, you make the payments and, you know, you're given title to the physical object, you know, that should include everything that makes that thing work, you know, and if you do something that that damages it, you know, I mean, once, you know, once you've done something that's outside of the warranty coverage, then, you know, you're responsible for that. You know, and I I have, I have no issue with a manufacturer not honoring a warranty. um, If the consumer has done something, you know, that, that damages that software if they've reflashed it or you know done you know done something that causes damage to other components in the vehicle because of that uh i don't have an issue with that you know but you know and i but i think that you know once you've bought something once you own it um you know you should own all the parts of that but you know and that gets us to you know this whole uh you know where i think this is going in the future um you know, you, you talked about, you know, Volvo, um, you know, wanting to um, control all those elements in the vehicle that are, you know, that are influenced by the software. You know, that's going to become way more of an issue, you know, in the coming years as we get into automated vehicles. Because, you know, I mean, the, now the software is going to control every aspect of that car. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, what we're seeing now you know, with companies like John Deere, you know, not wanting, I mean, you know, for, for John Deere and for other manufacturers, you know, they don't want to give up the service revenue, um, you know, and that's why they're, they're doing this. 
But going forward, you know, when you, we have automated vehicles, um, the, the, the consequences are actually much larger because, you know, the traditional stance is that, you know, the driver of the vehicle is responsible if they, you know, run that vehicle, you know, run somebody over, run into another car or a tree or whatever. You know, if, if it's a driver error, that driver is responsible for it. They're liable for that, for what happens. If the, if the driver is now not a human, but an algorithm running on a processor, then the manufacturer of that is going to be responsible for that. And so now all of a sudden, all these car makers that are going to be building these auto autonomous vehicles, um, you know, if they're liable for all that sort of thing, I don't think these guys are going to want to give up the control because, you know, they, they understand, you know, they they will not want um, consumers messing with this stuff, you know, whether that's hacking the software or putting third party service parts on there, you know, third party sensors, you know, get some cheap, you know, um, low cost uh, LIDAR sensor or, or radar sensor to replace the, the OEM parts. Um, and so, you know, they're going to want to make sure all that stuff is serviced properly so that they can ensure that the system behaves the way they want, that they intended. And also that they can make sure that it's kept up to date because they're, you know, they're going to be pushing out software updates to these things as the technology evolves and the algorithms get better. They're going to want to update the software in these vehicles. And so, um, this is why I think that the, the right to repair issue is actually going to become a non-issue going forward because, um, rather than take the chance of, uh, consumers getting, you know, hacked software from somewhere in Eastern Europe to put in their automated vehicle, um, you know, I think they're going to end up just keeping these vehicles and only providing them, most of them through, um, through mobility services, through on-demand services. So it's more uh, like a, or like a lease maybe. Um, I don't know that it would even be a lease. You know, I think, I think it's, you know, I mean, it could be a lease. Um, but even that, you know, it, I think it's more, you know, is a little, it, it's a little more problematic. Um, you know, I mean, still, you know, the, the manufacturer, uh, is still, I guess the owner or at least the, the bank, you know, whatever financial institution is, is backing the lease, uh, is the owner of the vehicle. So technically right. the, the driver should not be, uh, messing with that stuff. Um, but even, you know, even those leasing terms are going to have to evolve because, you know, under, if you go and lease a vehicle today, you're responsible for getting it serviced and, and maintained during the term of the lease. So that's going to have to change. Um, you know, they're going to have to change those terms to make sure that, you know, um, maybe, maybe part of the leasing agreement is that it has to be brought into specific locations and serviced, you know, only with official parts and things like well, that. And you can, you can, as a, as an automatic, you can spin that in a, as a positive, you can say, you know, it, it's included, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Call it back to the mothership. But I, I can see what you're saying is, uh, once you, you, you've removed the ownership component of that. And in some way that protects you because you're never actually selling it. You're right. You know, and we've, and we've seen this. So you don't have a right to repair something you don't own. Right. At, at a very simple level, you know, this, I've seen this happen and, and it's actually affected me where, uh, you know, I've used Adobe software for decades now. Mm -hmm. Um, we used to buy the giant <laughs> box, the $2,000 box of stuff 
that uh, you use for like five or six years because it costs so much. Now you pay a monthly fee to Adobe right. for Creative Cloud. Right. But the flip side is I always have the newest version. Yeah. You know, if if there's, uh, you know, something that comes out, some new feature or some patch or something, it updates automatically because I'm paying, you know, uh, $50 a month for everything or whatever it costs. Um, so, yes, I'm I'm paying an ongoing cost. But I, I, I get a usability benefit out of that. So I can understand the and this. This has rubbed a lot of the older school guys in this industry the wrong way because they, they want to own. They don't want to be beholden to, to another company. They want to own the stuff. They want to own the tools that they use to do their job. And I, I somewhat understand that. But on the other hand, I just want to get the friggin work done and get the, the you know, get paid. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I hear you. I mean, I, you know, I pay 10 bucks a month for, you know, the photography package, right. you know, it gets you Lightroom and Photoshop. And, right. you know, so I've always got the latest stuff. And, you know, I think the, the key is that, you know, the manufacturers are going to have to work out a pricing model that makes it at least no more expensive, you know, to have access to a vehicle whenever you need it. Um, you know, through these kinds of services than it is to own one today. And I think, you know, especially in urban areas, that probably won't be that hard, you know, to come up with a more attractive pricing model for people. Because, you know, if you live in someplace like Chicago or New York or, or San Francisco, the cost of owning a vehicle or in Detroit, for that matter, you know, where insurance oh, costs are so extraordinarily high, high yeah. um, you know, the coming up with a, a model a service model, a mobility as a service model that is actually more affordable, it probably won't be that hard. And, you know, having access to new, you know, not having to worry about, um, you know, actually service and maintenance on the vehicles, you know, getting them cleaned and, and all the other things, you know, getting your oil changes and tire rotations, not having to, to deal with all those hassles or figuring out where you're going to park. Um, you know, I think, those benefits, you know, can, will be offset, um, you know, by the, by the cost. So I, th I think it, I think it will actually probably in the long run work out better for everybody. And, you know, those of us that want to own vehicles that we actually drive, you know, I think we'll, we'll still have that option for many, many, many years to come. Certainly I think for the, for the duration of my lifetime and, and probably yours and, and probably, you know, probably our kids, you know, at least as an option uh, well into their adulthood. Yeah, it, and you know, maybe maybe driving will not become uh it it will cease to be the recreation that it is now and that that might be okay as much as I, you know. Well, I think for most people they most people are probably going to be just fine with that because I think most people really don't care about driving. What the I hell's mean, the you matter know. with them? <laughs> you know, I mean, if if you look at, you know, the vehicles that people buy that most people buy, you know, it's clear that, you know, they don't see driving as a recreational activity. They see it as a means to an end. You know, they see it as a way to get themselves where they want to be for the other activities, the other recreational activities that they want to partake in. What um, other activity could possibly be as exciting I, as, I, as you know, I have no idea, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, that's this is what I'm told when I talk yeah. to people that there's other stuff that they like to do besides driving. You know, I don't know, you know. You know, strange be, to me. some some people have weird ideas about stuff, you know, yeah. um, which which we'll come back to a little bit later on. <laughs> but yeah, this also, though, uh, so this seems really easy to or at least a lot easier to solve on the the automotive consumer 
side of things. I, I don't know how it shakes out for the farmers. Uh, that actually is, is a real concern, and that's something that probably has to get fixed pretty soon. Uh, it, but maybe the same kind of subscription model for the tractors and, and, and heavy equipment that they use on the farm works to a certain degree. Because you know that farmers have bought all that stuff uh, on a loan. You know, mm-hmm. they, uh, so you replace the, the loan for the equipment that eventually you will own. Um, you replace that with yeah, a payment that you will for, own and that you will be responsible for right. servicing and maintaining and putting right. new tires on. So I guess it, you wind up not owning the tractor. You just wind up owning the payment for the tractor, yeah. which is like, it's crappy to a certain degree. Um, but it's also, uh, maybe maybe a way to get from here to there. Uh, personally, if I were a farmer, I, I I would still be in New England, so I wouldn't have a whole lot of farm, and I would be looking at an old tractor. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you know, uh, I, I think you know, there, there's also the potential for this to, um, you know, to it it opens uh, a hole in the market for somebody else to come in. You know, certainly, you know, John Deere is one of the the dominant players in the farm equipment business. You know, but if if they don't want to go down that route, you know, and if farmers don't want to go down a, a subscription model uh, route, you know. That, that opens an opportunity for somebody else to come in and say, hey, you know, we will sell you this stuff and, you know, we won't, you know, we won't try to control the software side of it. You know, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to go the, the traditional model. And, you know, so we'll give you that option if that's what you want. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, some of the stuff is just driven by the emissions controls and stuff that are there. Like they affect uh, off-road diesel fuel vehicles as well, which is what a tractor is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. Farmers get the short end of the stick on a, on a lot of, uh, oh, yeah. levels. I mean, <laughs> they you do look at the, like the, the big ag that controls the, from the seeds to the fertilizer and, and just, uh, the, the way they get screwed <laughs> every time. They you know, you're around. starting to sound like someone who's distinctly anti big business, Dan. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I, I have looked into the companies such as Monsanto and it makes me angry. Because <laughs> uh, it's it's just it's yeah all right this so, is not uh, this is not the proper podcast and I don't have enough understanding of the situation uh, other to know that like what I have researched has pissed me off. Okay, so. um, before <laughs> before we leave that that entirely, I just I just want to address one email that we did get this week uh, from Jonathan and Jonathan we 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 appreciate you know that you're a fan of the podcast and we hope yes, you keep thank listening. You for listening. Uh, yes. Just despite despite our, our lefty leaning politics from, from both of us. Um, you know, and Jonathan's comment, uh, you know, basically was, um, you know, and you know, I, I'm a friend of Jonathan's on Facebook as well, and I've seen his postings on there. And so I know that his political leanings are generally the opposite of what Dan and I espouse. Um, and, uh, you know, we just want to say, just want to comment that, um, you know, yes, this is a podcast where Dan and I express our thoughts and opinions on a variety of topics related to transportation. And very often those will um, reflect our poli- our overall political leanings. Um, and we're, we're not trying to spout propaganda. This is just what we think. And we respect, 
you know, your, you know, the right, the rights of any of our listeners to have opposing opinions or, you know, uh, any, anywhere on the political spectrum or well, yeah. almost anywhere on the political spectrum. Well, no, I, um, I, I agree. I, I w- actually, I want to hear it and I've been willing to engage, uh, with other folks, uh, via social media. Um, cause I, I legitimately, yes, these are, these are my opinions and, and, uh, my, my political leanings, I will say I'm unaffiliated, uh, definitely, um, you know, like you, Sam, I, I, I lean more towards, uh, liberalism than, than conservatism, but, uh, there's room for, for debate. If we can have a civil debate, great, let's, let's do it. Cause maybe, maybe there's something I don't understand. And I'm not saying that, uh, uh, our way is always the right way or that um, we've no, our way is absolutely the right way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. I mean, I, you know, I, there have been, I know there's certainly been many times in my life when I've been wrong about stuff and I'm um, willing to, as you are to, to listen to opposing opinions and, you know, anyone out there listening that has opposing opinions um, or contrary opinions, um, you know, please share them with us, you know, and, you know, we're, we're, we're happy to talk about it and, and share your thoughts and, and, and have, and have a conversation. I mean, that's, you know, right at the, the top of the website, you know, it says this is a conversation about the future of transportation right. and, you know, the, for a conversation, you know, it needs to be a, at least a two way, um, you know, discussion, you know, and, you know, Dan and I agree on a lot of stuff. There's some things we don't necessarily agree on. Um, but you know, if there's something you disagree on, please share that with us, you know, uh, either via email or Twitter or, or, uh, Facebook or any other means you can get a hold of us. Yeah. And honestly, the, the problem that we, we run into, uh, you can't separate automobiles or the automotive industry or cars, uh, or even just being an automotive enthusiast from, uh, from politics at a certain point, you know, cars are political, uh, to a degree we try, I think we, we try hard not to, to go overboard with it, but there are some things where it's almost unavoidable to at least discuss it. And in discussing it, you know, our, our own opinions are going to come out. I don't think that's a bad thing. And, you know, that sometimes there can be a tendency for folks to be a little apologetic about it and try to hide it and skirt it. I think it's better to just let, let's put it out there and say, this is, this is what I think. This is what I believe. And this is why. Um, and if I'm, if I'm wrong or if we disagree, like, well, let, again, you know, send it a note, let's debate it and not call each other names, but you know, uh, you know, actually have a real substantive discussion. Um, and, and Jonathan actually did go on to say, like, he thinks, uh, your first strategy by Chinese, uh, uh, companies, uh, makes, Opal sale the PSA a smart move. So. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think that's you know that's that's an interesting perspective that I hadn't really thought about very much um, because you know uh, part of the the rescue of PSA in the last few years did involve a significant investment uh, from the Chinese uh, in PSA. They bought a, a pretty big stake in PSA, um, and so this that is an interesting perspective that, uh, that I hadn't really thought about so much. Um, and, you know, I think the, the Chinese market or the sorry, the European market is definitely a, an interesting opportunity for the Chinese to uh, to break out of uh, Asia, excuse me, and, you know, get into expand globally. Yeah, it, well, so all of our manufacturers are looking at China as an opportunity because they have so many 
you know, the cities are sort of untapped wells of millions of people. Um, at least as to where it was, as described to me, two, I would want to say three or four years ago now. Uh, so I don't know how much that's shifted, but if you've got all of these Western companies sort of salivating to get into the Chinese market, why is it, you know, I don't, I don't see that they're going to stay within their own market either. At a certain point, the Chinese companies are going to want to come out and, and join the Western market party too. I don't know that that's necessarily bad. Um, I don't know that it, it actually endangers our, our manufacturing base here um, to have uh, Chinese auto companies buying up and investing in um, automakers that are either in North America or Europe. Uh, you know, at a certain degree, or to, to a certain degree, it means that they'll put in the money to keep the, the jobs and the manufacturing going here as well. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, you need you need to have people employed, you know, with decent salaries to be able to afford to buy the products. And, you know, in the case of cars in particular, you know, the cost of of transportation, um, you know, for finished cars is not insignificant. Uh, so, you know, localized manufacturing uh, to to varying degrees, you know, is makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I mean, there's. That's that's part of why you have so many, you know, Japanese-based companies that are that build cars in the U.S. We have German companies like Volkswagen, BMW, Mercedes-Benz, uh, you know, that that all build cars and, and SUVs in the United States, uh, as well as in Mexico and and in other markets around the world where they sell vehicles. Um, so there's, you know, there, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of good reasoning, you know, beyond just the political. You know, there's a lot of it makes a lot of business sense to have some degree of localized manufacturing uh, for uh, for for vehicles. Yeah. So we'll see how that shakes out. I don't see that it's necessarily a danger. Um, might want to look at it as an opportunity. Uh, yeah. and, you know, I, things are going to go pear shaped. They're just going to get all changed. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, real, realistically, you know, you look at the, you know, the U.S. market. You know, one, one of the reasons why I think, you know, we're probably not going to see the same kind of Chinese onslaught into North America and even Europe, you know, with their own, with their own brands that we saw, you know, with the Japanese and the Koreans in the seventies and eighties and nineties um, is the opportunities for overall growth um, in Europe and North America, you know, the, those markets are, are more closer to saturation points. And so there's not going to be as much growth, which means that, to get any significant share in in these markets and these you know, traditional markets um, is going to be a lot harder and it's going to be a lot more expensive to grab that market share uh, compared to doing that in uh, markets that are not as developed, not as saturated, you know, which is why you see more companies going into China than the other way around, because there's still a lot more opportunity for growth in China and India and, and in other markets than there is in North America and Europe, where, you know, the, the population growth is not as, as big, um, you know, vehicles are lasting longer. Uh, so the sales, you know, sales projections are not, you know, we're probably not going to see, a whole lot more than, you know, 18 to 18 and a half million vehicles a year tops, you know, in the next, at least in the next decade uh, in North America, um, you know, and, you know, probably about 14 or so in, in Europe. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that 
kind of pales in comparison to the Chinese market too. So there's, there's yeah, room. I mean, they're already, you know, over 24 million. Yeah. At a certain point too, I expect this all to just come to a screeching halt globally. Like everybody who wants a car is going to have a car and there's just going to oh, be yeah. like a five year moratorium on it. It's just, it's well, like and, and also, you know, as, as we, as we start to get to that, uh, mobility as a service model, that's also, you know, eventually going to start to cut into sales. And so sales volumes are, are going to plateau and eventually start to decline. Yeah. And what do you do for that? Like, what's your plan for that? You better have a plan for it now. But. Well, and, and that's where, you know, that's why you see a lot of car makers, you know, develop you know, actively developing services, you know, developing the services business, you know, in addition to just manufacturing and selling vehicles, you know, they're, they're, they want to be the ones that provide those mobility services and get those revenues from on-demand mobility. Yeah. All right. Okay. You, Enough of wanna, that. Yeah. We want to talk about one uh, fun thing was uh, it, apparently it's possible to trap an autonomous car with a bag of flour. Uh, yeah. Well, pretty interesting. <laughs> at, at least, you know, in that, in that video, there's uh, we'll put a link to uh, this video. If you haven't seen it um, from, uh, I think, I think it was a, a French, yeah. French artist, um, you know, basically playing on the idea that, you know, an autonomous car would be designed to follow traffic rules and, you know, one of the, the consistent traffic rules is that if you've got a solid line, you know, uh, down the middle of the road, um, you know, you don't cross the solid line, but you can cross the dashed line. And so, you know, if you, you know, drew a, a circle, you know, have had a car drive into a, a circle, you know, that consisted of a dashed line around the outside and a solid line around the middle, you could cross the outer line you know, and go into the middle of the circle, but then it wouldn't be able to, you know, the cameras on the car would see the solid line and not allow it to go back out again. Well, that particular example is probably not all that realistic, you know, for, well, for the obvious reason, but also, I mean, that, that's an, that's an easy thing that I think the engineers would probably think of upfront and, and address scenarios like that in the software, you know, so that if it, if it sees something like that, it's going to ignore it. Um, but it also does raise some interesting questions as to, you know, what are the other kinds of things that humans could do to mess with autonomous vehicles in the future? Um, and there's all kinds of possibilities. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, some of the, the more, um, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking creative. for? <laughs> yes. The more creative amongst you uh, could probably yeah. think of a few ideas uh, for how you could mess with future automated vehicles. But I mean, it also just it, it goes back to the point, too. We've heard lots of over the last year, lots of breathless coverage of how autonomous cars are coming and they are the future and all of the stuff. And it, it, they are to a certain degree. Um, but the tech is only as good as its inputs. And it's deceptively simple to give it bad input. And, yeah, you, you know, at that point, it, it also drives some of the point of the just the astounding amount of complex decisions that us as as even crappy human human drivers uh we're all this information we're processing understanding and deciding on in, in you know mere instance when we when we drive and that's what we're trying to replicate with with computer equipment and it, it's really difficult uh it, it it's so it seems like deceptively easy to drive but it's actually devilishly hard uh to make machines uh that are as flexible and adaptable in in quick terms as as you know most drivers brains are that's that's pretty interesting 
Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it's, you know, for all the flaws that, that our brains have, um, we are remarkably adaptable and, you know, remarkably, um, remarkably good at dealing with very subtle nuances and, you know, figuring out, you know, seeing that something does not make sense and, and basically ignoring that, um, not always, but you know, in in many scenarios, yeah. And, some of uh, us have better brains than others. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough of that. Uh, needless to say, you know, there there's still plenty of work uh, for the software engineers to do before they have a really viable uh, and robust uh, self driving car system. I just thought um, it was a funny parlor trick. I liked it. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, so we had uh, one question that came in on Twitter this evening. We had, we had a couple, um, actually. We had another one too. So we, we, let's oh, do we have another one? Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's hit this. Let's hit this one first. Uh, the Roadster question. Um, so uh, let's see. Who was it? Uh, Under ten thousand dollar Roadster yeah. for nice days and occasional autocross. Uh, yeah. So early NC Miata, MR2 Spider, or early Boxster. Um, so first of all, I think, um, you might be on the edge of being able to uh, get a decent NC Miata for under 10 grand, uh, an NB, a second generation Miata would probably be a better choice at that price point. Yeah. Um, I think MR, MR2 or Miata would, you know, either one would be a great choice. Um, yeah, and particularly, you know, the Miata, one of the advantage the Miata's got is easier serviceability. You know, so if you like to uh, pull out the wrenches and, and do some of your own work, um, it's going to be a lot easier to work on a Miata of any generation than either uh, an MR2 or the an early Boxster, which was the, the third option. Um, the, uh, the, the Boxster, you can get some Boxsters, you know, early Boxsters for under 10 grand. Yeah. And by the, now the IMS thing should, should have been repaired on that. I, yeah. I, I, the, the problem you're going to have with, with any Porsche, um, like that, you know, is it, you know, as with the, the MR2, it's going to be hard to service and it's also going to be really expensive to service. To so Porsche you may tax. be able to get the car cheap, but buying, you could, you could buy an early early boxer like that relatively cheaply owning one cheaply is an entirely different situation and what? that's something you probably won't be able to do so it depends on yeah. how much of your own work you do i think um you could probably own it less ex i won't say necessarily cheaply but you can you can own it less expensively if you are capable of doing a bit of your own work or a lot of your own work yeah, a lot, a lot of your own work. But even even then, you know, parts are are going to be more expensive than for a Toyota or a Mazda. Um, and you know, I think certainly for the for the Miata, you know, you can find a lot of uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot more of those around, so you can find parts cars, you know, and it's going to be a lot easier to find parts than for the MR2, um, and and to find them cheap. Yeah, I mean the Miata to me is is probably the the smartest choice. Uh, it's the best bang for your buck. It's inexpensive. It's it's pretty durable and robust as far as cars like that go because it, it you know it's pretty simple. Um, there's just a, a lot of support for it. Uh, I you know the one other choice I think of is like the Honda S two thousand. Which oh is, yeah, that that would be another great choice. Although those those are hard, hard to find, find for under ten grand. Yes, that's what I was gonna say. Like you could probably find one for ten grand, but 
Um, you're going to have to look carefully. It'll probably have high miles by that point and be like the AP1, which may not be your cup of tea. You might like the AP2 instead, which is the, the sort of later S2000. Yeah, the 2.2 liter. Yeah. Um, Those are a lot of fun to drive. They're a lot of fun. The, the problem I think you're going to run into again is it, it's closer to the Porsche than it is to the Miata, where it's going to be a little bit more expensive to maintain. Uh, parts are going to be more expensive. It's going to be... But it's also a lot easier to work on, too, though. Yeah. Um, it's I mean, sort of like know, halfway but, in between, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're... You you have you at least have access to the engine in S two thousand. You know, yeah. Accessing the engine in a Boxster is that's going to be painful. Yeah, I mean, I really like the S two thousand. Another possibly inexpensive roadster would be uh, um, roadster would be something like a, a Solstice or a Sky, um, but I just don't think those cars are that. <laughs> I mean, they're they're fun to drive, but they're, they're yeah. not they're not as as livable as a they feel like a kit car. <laughs> yeah i mean you know the tops are annoying to put up and down you know if it rains you know it's it's a hassle to deal with the top on those cars uh the ergonomics are not very good um you know the the mr2 you know it is above all else a toyota so right. it's going to tend to be reliable and tend to run for a long time so even though it's you know going to be a harder car to work on than either the miata or an s2000 um you know it will it will have a tendency towards reliability so that's that's definitely a, a plus yeah so i i think we've we've basically said the answer is miata or what is, what is the what is the thing <laughs> is is not is that not the answer to every automotive right. question well so it's m i a t a miata is always the answer <laughs> Um, it is the 42 of the automotive world. Yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> all right. So the other question that we got over um, Twitter was uh, thoughts on a CPO. Uh, oh, yeah. Q50 hybrid uh, around 30,000, 30,000 miles um, or Optima hybrid. Uh, he's, he's asking, um, did the Optima hybrid drive well for a hybrid or overall? No, I thought I thought the Optima Hybrid drove well overall. Um, the uh, you know I, I haven't driven the Q50 Hybrid. Um, you know I've generally heard you know good things about the Q50 driving experience. Yeah, and this um, this would be a used hybrid too, is what he's looking at. He's looking at yeah, you know. So if if you're if you can get a CPO for under thirty grand. That's actually probably not a bad deal because you know the advantage you get you know with any CPO. Uh, versus just buying a regular used car, you know, either private party or from a dealer is you do get a warranty with it. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, it, it will have, you know, been reconditioned by the manufacturer and, you know, and have at least some warranty coverage on there, which is, uh, you know, that, I mean, you're going to pay a premium for that, you know, versus a private party sale. Uh, but, uh, for a car like this, it's probably worthwhile to do that. So, um, you know, I, I would recommend, you know, taking them both for a test drive, uh, see what you think. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, the, the Optima is probably going to be a bit more efficient. Um, the Q50 is probably going to have, you know, somewhat better driving dynamics since it is rear wheel drive and it's, you know, it's, it's a good plot it's a good solid yeah. platform. Um, so, you know, I would, I would check them both out. I think, I think, you know, they're, they're, they're both really can, good choices. I would much rather be in an infinity interior for the next several 
tens of thousands of miles than uh, even the Optima, which is nice, but uh, depending on, you know, the equipment level. Yeah, no, you're probably uh, right. Infinities are nice inside when they're equipped well, and the press cars are always equipped well, so they're very nice. <laughs> um, that That's an easy thing to love. Uh, definitely the Optima Hybrid's going to probably be a little bit more sophisticated in how its hybrid system operates, and, and it's it's probably another generation evolved from the Infinity system, which... The, it, it's it's good but I, I don't i don't know that it's the same same kind of car yeah i mean it's it's basically you know their first generation hybrid system you know which has been around for uh what i think about five or six years now um you know so it's it, you're right it's probably i haven't driven it yet so it's probably not quite as refined as you know the late as the current generation optima um but uh yeah i think it's it will probably yeah. be fine so uh yeah i think we solved that one too uh, <laughs> um okay. is that is that it we've got for uh for for questions uh, uh i believe so yeah uh let me just take a quick look over on facebook and see if there was anything else there in the time since i last checked um not uh no nothing new there so yeah i think we're good, right, good for tonight well we'll hit everybody up next week thank you for uh for the couple of questions and the feedback on our political views <laughs> and you know if you if you have uh you know any contrary views you know and you want to make your argument we're here we're, yeah. we'll listen and we'll you know yeah, we'll discuss absolutely. it you know just you know just make you know just st stay away from ad hominem stuff and you know give us give us good solid reasons for you know for yeah, what you're saying say, send them in with and, lots know, and lots we'll of definitely take into account and bad spelling in all caps i like that the all caps especially and you can send those to boston <laughs> underscore auto on yeah. twitter uh all right well i'll let you get back to your evening because uh i know you're at the the truck thing so uh you finish that up and yeah. then, uh, we'll, we'll hit everybody up again next week all right sounds great we'll talk to you all next week Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.